This is Guns and Butter. And I think that there's been a lot of analysis with regard to Iran to the extent that the Syrian war, in a sense, is part of the roadmap. As some analysts have underscored, uh, the road to Tehran goes through Damascus. And consequently, the outcome of the Syrian war is crucial in defining the next stage of this broader Middle East agenda. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show, Global Warfare. Is the U.S. NATO going to attack Russia? Michel Chosodovsky is an economist and the founder, director, and editor of the Center for Research on Globalization, based in Montreal, Quebec. He is the author of 11 books, including The Globalization of Poverty and the New World Order, War and Globalization, The Truth Behind September 11th, America's War on Terrorism, and The Globalization of War, America's Long War Against Humanity. Today we discuss the significance of NATO's large-scale military exercises underway in Eastern Europe. Global warfare and non-conventional warfare, Iran and the Middle East, the Oded Yinon Plan, and the strategic alliance between Russia and China within a larger global geopolitical framework. Michel Chosodovsky, welcome. Delighted to be on the program. You have talked about Anaconda 2016, NATO's large-scale military exercises underway in Poland. The war games, launched on Monday, June 6th, will run until June 17th. How significant are these war games? Well, they're certainly significant, but they shouldn't be interpreted uh, as war preparations against the Russian Federation. They're there to threaten Russia, but in fact, we must understand that we're in the framework of global warfare. And by threatening Russia on its western frontier with, uh, with the European Union, uh, doesn't signify necessarily that NATO and, of course, the United States are intent upon attacking Russia using uh, conventional military hardware. And there are many reasons for that. Uh, first of all, Russia is involved in the Middle East. Um, the United States and its allies are threatening uh, Russia, China, and Iran. Uh, the United States and its allies are involved in a war in the Middle East in which, of course, Iran and Russia are involved, directly involved. I'm talking about Syria. So that by putting pressure on Russia um, in Eastern Europe, the United States is also, in effect, uh, manipulating the environment, the geopolitical environment. Uh, I should mention, and that's very important, that history tells us that war is based on deceit and intelligence. And you don't um, amass significant weapon systems on the border um, with uh, 
historical enemy, namely the Russian Federation, and then send out press releases of what you're doing. Okay? So that if we compare this particular exercise to, uh, to World War II and Operation Barbarossa, which was launched on the 22nd of June 1941, well, in fact, this was a secret operation. Um, it was decided upon on December 10th uh, 1940, at a time when the relations between the Soviet Union and, and Nazi Germany were, in fact, uh, normal and, in fact, quite good that the, uh, the Nazi government had, in fact, approached Russia and asked them if they wanted to have some kind of relationship to the Axis powers. That was subsequently abandoned, but there was trade, there was diplomatic relations between Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union. And, of course, that dated back to the, to the non-aggression pact signed in 1938 between Molotov and Ribbentrop. Uh, and, 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 and so that if we look at history, first of all, deception is, is ultimately the guiding light. Uh, you deceive your enemy and you do not reveal your war plans. Although, in fact, the war plans are known because there's intelligence, and the Russians have intelligence, the Americans have intelligence. And with regard to Operation Barbarossa, there was intelligence that uh, the Axis powers, well, namely Nazi Germany, was preparing uh, a massive invasion. But somehow Stalin did not take it seriously. It was communicated to him. He didn't take it seriously. And then um, uh, Germany started deploying um, massive amounts of military hardware on Russia's border, starting in May, and then the, the, the campaign was launched on the 22nd of June. But what I think is, is significant um, with regard to these war games on Russia's uh, doorstep is that they coincide with the 75th anniversary of Operation Barbarossa. Uh, they started in, uh, in early June, and they are to be completed somewhere towards the 18th of, um, the 18th of June. And then um, in early July, there's going to be a major uh, NATO conference which will underscore strategic uh, strategic alliances as well as war plans in relation to to the Russian Federation. But um, bear in mind, uh, we're in a different era. Um, it is very unlikely that a war with Russia would involve an onslaught of conventional warfare with tanks and, and armored cars, as occurred, let's say, in previous wars. So we're not talking about a conventional war theater per se. And in all likelihood, if such a war were to be launched, it would involve non-conventional weapon systems, um, including the paralysis, let's say, of, of, uh, of communication systems, uh, it would include financial warfare, the, the freezing of financial transactions and trade. 
And there are many other advanced weapon systems, such as climatic uh, warfare, um, the engineering, the, the geoengineering, which are fully operational and which could be used. So what I'm saying here is that in this particular era, it's these non-conventional uh, endeavors which are being implemented. And some of them may involve the deployment of, of uh, conventional forces in some cases. In other cases, it's special forces. It's the war on terrorism. It's the financing of insurgencies. Uh, it's the manipulation of um, commodity and financial markets. We saw it in relation to the oil market, how, how that collapse was ultimately conducive to the destabilization of, of several oil-producing economies, such as Venezuela. And very often, these various non-conventional mechanisms are combined with regime change, uh, the financing of protest movements, and so on and so forth. So we're in a very different environment, but we are within the environment of global warfare. And this is part of a military agenda, which is, is, certainly, um, is certainly formulated. And, and in fact, World War III has been formulated by the Pentagon for years now. Um, every year they have war games, which have as a, as a paradigm World War III. Um, some of the scenarios actually have been made public, uh, others not. Most of them are secret uh, undertakings if we're talking about military planning. But we know, for instance, that um, the Pentagon is simulating uh, essentially a global military agenda directed against four um, countries at this stage, um, Russian Federation, the People's Republic of China, Iran, and North Korea. Those four countries are identified, and they're identified in war games. Um, I, I recall, for instance, uh, what was called, well, it was, a, it was a war game which involved four fictitious countries and it was made public. It's a Pentagon project, Churia, Rubek, Nemesi, and Birmingham. Okay, so Churia, China, Rubek, Russia, Birmingham, Iran, and Nemesi, North Korea. And there were other such war games. Now, I think what is very important that people must understand that is that World War Three is an option. It is an option. And the use of nuclear weapons on a preemptive basis is also an option. And in other words, we're dealing with, a, we're dealing with um, uh, military assumptions which potentially could uh, lead humanity to uh, complete destruction. It's not to say that this would take place immediately, but if there is a nuclear war, uh, this spells uh, a worldwide catastrophe. And nuclear weapons are on the table. Uh, Hillary Clinton has said that she wants to use them, and she wants to use them against Iran. Now, to summarize, if we're looking at a chronology of what's going to happen, I think that the next step in this military agenda 
is not Russia, but it is Iran. And it, it would involve, of course, um, America's uh, various allies in the Middle East. Of course, NATO is involved, but here we have major actors, Israel, Turkey, and Saudi Arabia. And um, in effect, if we look at the Syrian war theater, we see that, that these various actors are already there. Uh, Iran is uh, assisting the, the Syrian government forces, and so is Russia. And Turkey and Saudi Arabia are assisting the terrorists um, in liaison with the United States. So that, from my understanding, we might say that World War III has already commenced. But as far as the roadmap, the World War III roadmap is concerned, I, I think that the next stage is Iran. And notice that the United States is not actually threatening Iran at this particular juncture. Well, one can't say at the same time that there's been normalization uh, since the, the agreement on, on uh, nuclear energy. But if we're looking at where the threats are most visible from the propaganda point of view, it's in Eastern Europe and the Baltic states. And what I'm, what I'm saying essentially is that the deployment of massive, this massive deployment of military hardware is not there for military purposes. It's there for propaganda purposes. It's there to intimidate. Um, and it's also there to intimidate the Russian people. But the Russian military planners are not so stupid. They know that, that, that when a war is being planned, it's usually a secret operation. And they also have their own intelligence services, which are indicating to them as to what the next step of this war is going to be. And the next step of this war is in the Middle East and not in, in Western Europe. I'm speaking with economist and director of the Center for Research on Globalization, Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show, Global Warfare, Is the U.S.-NATO Going to Attack Russia? I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, Michelle, you have just pointed out that history tells us that war plans are based on deceit, but that in the case of Anaconda 2016, these deployments in Eastern Europe and the Baltics are public, and that their main goal is to, quote, essentially to give leeway to the United States to wage its wars in other regions of the world, particularly in the Middle East. How large are these military drills in Poland? Now, we're talking about very substantial uh, deployments of, of uh of military hardware with a large number of countries uh, which are participating in these war games. And um, from that point of view, it's symbolic. But, but in effect, this has been the ploy is, is essentially to intimidate. And it doesn't signify that this is going to result in, um, in an actual confrontation with the Russian Federation, which from the point of view of NATO would be absolute suicide because the, the Russian Federation's conventional forces are, are very advanced and so are their strategic capabilities. So they're not really going to, unless, no, unless somebody makes some stupid mistake. And I should mention that mistakes 
are often the cause of war, okay? We don't necessarily, it's not necessarily logistics and geopolitics and so on. We are dealing with a military planning process which is very sophisticated, which is very intricate in terms of networks, uh, we have to look at U.S. strategic command in, in, uh, in uh, Omaha, Nebraska, which coordinates, and then you have the command structures, then you have your allies, then you have your air defense system. Israel's air defense system is, is integrated into that of the United States and NATO. Um, there's a very structured decision-making process um, with many different actors. But it is also under those circumstances that errors occur. And some of the, the errors will occur because the decision makers believe their own propaganda. And I'll give you an example. For instance, now the U.S. Senate in 2002, so it goes back. It's a post-9-11 decision when Rumsfeld was, you know, Secretary of Defense, that at that time... Uh, and it's not known uh, to the public, is that nuclear weapons were reclassified and they can be used in the conventional war theater without the green light from the commander-in-chief, namely the President of the United States. And this applies to a category of nuclear weapons which are called mini-nukes, but they have an explosive capacity between one-third and six times the Hiroshima bomb. They're deployed... Pretty much, well, they're deployed in, in Western Europe. Turkey has them. Uh, many, several allies of the United States uh, who are non-nuclear states uh, have them, and they're deployed uh, against uh, Iran, but also against the Russian Federation, and they can be used on a preemptive basis, uh, in other words, for self-defense, without uh, approval at the highest level of government. And uh, they are categorized as harmless to the surrounding civilian population because the explosion is underground, so to speak. And this is now written up in the military manuals. So a three-star general in, in uh, let's say, Central Command in the Middle East is going to follow the military manual. And he says, oh, the bunker buster B-6112 uh, tactical nuclear weapon is harmless to civilians, let's go ahead and use it. And so I'm, what I'm saying is people believe their propaganda, and uh, particularly people like Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump believe their own propaganda. Um, Hillary Clinton has made the statement that, that nuclear weapons are on the table, and she has intimated uh, that uh, Iran would be obliterated. I'm using the same words as, as Hillary Clinton. And so mistakes, well, mistakes combined with stupidity, paranoia, and ignorance. There are two types of mistakes. There are those which are dependent on technical, uh, you know, technical or logistical uh, errors, namely a nuclear weapon might be sent off by mistake due to some technical um, um, weaknesses, and there have been many cases of this daily happening, which, has, which have been amply documented. But there are other types of mistakes, so-called mistakes, which, which have to do with uh, paranoia, political paranoia, 
and uh, stupidity and ignorance of uh, officials in high office. And that we have to be very careful. Can we trust somebody like Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump to to make uh, seasoned and, and wise decisions on behalf of, of um, not only on behalf of the United States, but on behalf of the world, because we're talking about World War III. And I, I'd, I'd say from their statements, I'd say we have to be very careful. Uh, these people are very dangerous. They shouldn't be, uh, they should not accede to the highest office of the land, namely presidency of the United States of America. Michel, according to your analysis, the next phase of this global war is Iran and the Middle East, not Russia, and that the buildup in Europe serves that purpose. What is the evidence for that? Well, the evidence is really very much based on statements and war plans uh, and timelines which has been released by the Pentagon. We, we can refer to Wesley Clark's, uh, you know, famous statements of seven countries in five years, where he lists, well, it's based on testimony uh, from a, a Pentagon official, where he, he, uh, he actually says it's uh, seven countries in, in five years, and these, these are the countries. Now, I, I, I can tell you that... Uh, that Back in the, in the 90s already, Central Command Headquarters had, had um, identified, and that was well before the Iraq War, okay? Back in the mid-90s, well, the, the, let's say the Gulf War had already been, had already been implemented uh, in 91. But uh, what the Central Command document says is textually, first Iraq then Iran. And the rationale was to ensure unimpeded access to Middle East oil. So it's part of the, of the, the battle for oil. And it's also part of a battle to prevent competing powers from having, having alliances in the Middle East with countries like Iraq and Iran. Okay. And, uh, and so it, it really is the hegemony of the Anglo-American oil companies, which is sought. Now, to get back to uh, General Wesley Clark, um, who is currently a retired four-star army, army general, who was Supreme Allied Commander of NATO during the 1999 war in Yugoslavia. Well, in what he says, and he's quoting... Um, a Pentagon official with whom he had a conversation when he was, you know, I think he was still serving. Uh, this goes back to um, a statement made in, in um, 2007, and the quote is, we're going to take out seven countries in five years, starting with Iraq and then Syria, Lebanon, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and finishing off with Iran. Now, we can see that several of those countries have already been invaded, uh, in, including, of course, Syria, Lebanon, Libya, Somalia. Well, in fact, all of them <laughs> except Iran. Okay, so if we if we go by by the 
the testimony of of um, of General Wesley Clark, the next country which has not been attacked by the United States and its allies is Iran. All the others have, uh, in one form or another. And of course, we still have Yemen, which is not in the list. But uh, we now have a we now have an extended um, war theater in in the Middle East. We started up with Iraq, and um, and of course we had Afghanistan, which is pretty much sort of at the other end. It's not really part of the Middle East from a geographic, geopolitical point of view, but it's it's Central Asia. So Central Asia and um, and the Middle East is the broader region. And what we have seen since uh, uh, since the U.S.-led war in Afghanistan, uh, both the earlier as well as the subsequent attacks in 2001, okay, is a roadmap uh, which uh, has extended, which, which has led to escalation. Uh, Afghanistan in 2001, Iraq in 2003, and then, of course, then you have, uh, then you have uh, Syria and, um, and Libya in 2011, and then you have Yemen, and then, of course, you also have the drone attacks in Pakistan, which it's not a declared war, but it's still a war against a sovereign nation. Um, it's attacks, drone attacks within Pakistan's territory, uh, and it's an act of aggression. And so that ultimately what is building up is, uh, is military escalation extending from uh, the eastern Mediterranean and the Maghreb, okay, all the way through to uh, Afghanistan and Pakistan. Uh, and bear in mind that Afghanistan has a border with, with China. Uh, so we're, we're extending this war, uh, this regional war, right to the western frontier of the People's Republic of China. And I should also mention that in China, in the Xinjiang Yuga Autonomous Region, there are uh, Al-Qaeda-affiliated groups which are supported covertly by Pakistani intelligence in liaison with the CIA. So that, that is the perspective. And I think that there's been a lot of analysis um, with regard to Iran um, to the extent that the Syrian war, in a sense, is, is, is part of the roadmap. Uh, as some analysts have, have, um, have underscored, uh, the road to Tehran goes through Damascus. And, uh, and consequently, the outcome of the Syrian war is crucial um, in defining the next stage of, of this uh, broader Middle East uh, agenda, which essentially consists in breaking up countries, establishing spheres of influence, transforming countries into territories, uh, it's not necessarily to win the war militarily, but you destroy Libya, you destroy Iraq, uh, you undermine the institutions, and you create territories. And, and these territories, have, of course, have tremendous resources, particularly in oil. And then you wage a demonization campaign against, uh, against the Muslims, and it just so happens that, that Muslim countries have uh, approximately between 60 and 
70% of the world's reserves of crude oil. I'm not talking about uh, other forms of oil, such as tar sands. And um, if those countries had been inhabited by Buddhists, we would be demonizing the Buddhists. But we are now demonizing the inhabitants of the countries that we want to conquer, which have tremendous resources in, in terms of oil. And then, of course, there are other actions taken in, in sub-Saharan Africa against, uh, against Nigeria, for instance, with Boko Haram. Boko Haram is known to be an intelligence asset uh, as well, uh, linked up to the Al-Qaeda-affiliated organizations, which are CIA-sponsored. So that is the nature of, um, of the broader war. It's, it's the extension of this military agenda within, within the Middle East, the breakup of countries, the establishment of new borders. It's what some U.S. military analysts call the new Middle East. I'm speaking with economist and director of the Center for Research on Globalization, Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show, Global Warfare, Is the U.S.-NATO Going to Attack Russia? I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You've mentioned oil as an objective of these Middle Eastern wars, but what is the overall objective of all of these wars in the Middle East? Is it part of the Oded Union plan for greater Israel? Well, you know... I think the Greater Israel plan can be used by the United States and NATO as an instrument of conquest. I think, from my standpoint, Israel is not, is not a partner uh, in the same way as, as the other Western powers are partners with the United States. Okay? It's a small country. It has certainly very important uh, capabilities, and it's very much dependent on U.S. military aid, but it serves a geopolitical purpose in the Middle East, uh, in the pursuit of, of, let's say, the pursuit of conquest in the Middle East. Israel is absolutely, of course, essential. Okay? And uh, I, I recall that going back to uh, 2000, I, I can't recall, it was at least 10 years ago, it was during the Bush administration, Dick Cheney intimated that, um, that uh, Israel might do the work for us. And he was talking about the bombing of, of Iran. Uh, and I think that's still the case, that, that Israel would be an instrument on behalf of the United States and NATO. In other words, uh, we, we see this pattern of the United States using its allies to do the dirty work. Well, Israel would do the dirty work, and in exchange for that, they would get greater Israel, or at least they'd be able to expand their territory. And certainly, the, the, the policies of the Netanyahu government are, in fact, geared towards that. It's ultimately the, the appropriation of Palestinian lands, um, the, the ultimate policy of, of, of uh, genocide and exodus of the Palestinians from their homeland, that is, uh, is part of it. And it's being used as a mechanism uh, to incite this broadening of, of the Middle East conflict. 
so that you have Israel and you have Turkey and Saudi Arabia. I think these are the three countries which, which are starting to play a major role in, 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 uh, in the Middle East war. And I should mention that they also have very important bilateral relations. Uh, Turkey and Israel have, have um, uh, an agreement which goes back uh, some 20, 30 years. Um, it goes back to the 90s. Namely, it's, it's, uh, it's a relationship of cooperation uh, in military and intelligence, uh, in uh, defense production, uh, in intelligence, very close bilateral relation. And uh, there may be ups and downs in that relationship, but it is still standing. And uh, Israel is also building bilateral relations with Saudi Arabia. So these countries are going to be used. And I should mention that both Turkey and Israel have territorial, they, they have certain plans to extend their territory. We see it with uh, Turkey at this very moment. Their plan is to annex a portion of, of, of uh, in other words, the northern part of Syria. And um, uh, similarly, um, Israel wants to extend its territory uh, so that these partners are playing a key role uh, but ultimately, they are they are subordinate to uh, to the Pentagon. They they don't call the shots. They don't call the shots. Uh, they may call the shots in some regards, uh, but broadly, from a, a broad military planning point of view, uh, they are integrated within within uh, U.S. Uh, Pentagon and NATO decision-making processes. And I should say that NATO is dominated by the United States. Uh, so that, I think that's the background. Um, it's not to say that, the, that the, the plan of greater Israel is the objective of this war, but it is, it, it, in fact, it's a byproduct of this war, and it, it is very useful for the Western military alliance to use it with a view to to uh, reaching its broader uh, objective, which is uh, to recolonize, so to speak, the, the Middle East uh, and Central Asian region. And um, once Iran, at least from the point of view of military planners, I'm not suggesting it's going to happen, but once Iran implements some form of regime change and succumbs to, to the powers of NATO and the United States, um, this changes the geopolitical balance. Uh, because as I mentioned, there are four uh, countries which are identified, and they're also identified in military and in, in uh, war game scenarios, which are considered to be on the target list. And, and those are uh, Russia, China, uh, Iran, and North Korea. And I think uh, the other dimension, which is absolutely crucial, is that the structure of military alliances is also an instrument of conquest. We've seen it in all previous major world conflicts. In World War I, the, the Triple Alliance and, and the Triple Entente, the, the shift in the structure of alliances was ultimately decisive in the onslaught of, of World War I. 
Next, and uh, uh, similarly in World War II, the, the alliances of the Axis with, uh, with Italy and, and, and also subsequently with Japan. But uh, in this particular uh, context, in, in, in the context of global warfare, uh, the major thrust of the United States has been to uh, weaken the strategic relationship between Russia and China. Uh, and they've been doing that for quite some time. Uh, the signing of the, of the Shanghai Cooperation Agreement in 1972 was Kissinger and, and, and of course, Richard Nixon, who uh, negotiated that. Uh, the restoration of capitalism in China, Deng Xiaoping, which was ultimately serving U.S. interests and who was very much anti-Soviet at the time, um, that was was sort of bring China into the orbit of of, uh, of the Western military alliance. And of course, China is integrated as an industrial colony into serving you know, into producing made in China. It's the biggest, the United States is the biggest market for China. So there's, there's, a, there's a cross-cutting alliance there. Uh, China is allied with Russia, but at the same time, uh, China has extensive trade agreements with the United States. Uh, it has a bilateral agreement that is signed in 2001, which was prior to its entry into the World Trade Organization, which allows for for U.S. banks and Western banks to enter into, into the, the Chinese financial landscape. And so they're all there, Goldman Sachs, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, uh, uh, you know, Citigroup, they all have their subsidiaries there. They even have access to domestic banking, um, which was provided to them. And uh, in that regard, um, we can't simply say that China is, is uh, you know, is a firm ally of, of the Russian Federation. It, it may be at, at a certain level in, in military and strategic affairs, but from an economic standpoint, uh, we cannot ignore the fact that the United States has very close bilateral relations with the People's Republic of China. You have said that the U.S. wants to break the strategic alliance between Russia and China by co-opting China. How, in your opinion, does the U.S. propose to achieve breaking this alliance? Well, I, I'm not clear as to whether the United States is, is undertaking this in the right way, because in effect... In recent years, they have been threatening China with regard to its territorial waters. It's, the, the relationship is, is quite uh, aggressive, uh, uh, at least from the military strategic point of view. But uh, as I mentioned, the economic relations are relatively good. And there the people within the leadership which are very pro-American. And I've experienced this on, on recent trips to China when I, uh, I addressed the Chinese uh, Academy of Social Sciences and, and uh, I, I pointed out the fact that, that China's borders were surrounded with U.S. military facilities and that they were being threatened. But that was a couple of years back. 
And um, the, reaction was, <laughs> the reaction was rather negative. They said, well, no, we, we have good uh, relations with the United States. And they essentially ac accused me. They took the side of the United States and said, Professor, you have given us a left-leaning perspective. Um, but uh, that's just to indicate that, that people uh, in government and people in the universities and the think tanks in China tend to be pro-American. Um, and uh, on the other hand, people in the, the military uh, are on the whole, um, anti-American. Uh, so there's a, there's a, there's a situation, uh, which I would describe as, well, it's contradictory, but you have cross cutting alliances. And on the one hand, uh, Russia and China have a strategic alliance under the Shanghai cooperation uh, organization. On the other hand, the United States has trade and investment alliance with China, which is extensive um, due to the volume of that trade. And bear in mind, another important factor is that these countries are now capitalist countries. So, uh, you know, they're not upholding an alternative economic system as in the heyday of the Cold War. Okay, there's no more so-called socialism in the People's Republic of China or in, in, uh, or in, uh, in the Russian Federation. And, and in fact, uh, quite the opposite. China is, is certainly not a model of, of social democracy by any means. It's the most oppressive form of capitalism one can possibly imagine, with uh, sweat labor conditions extending to millions of people, with 275 million migrant workers, and those are official figures uh, who are integrated into the cheap labor economy, and that in turn feeds the Western consumer economy. We have to understand that. So that there are very important vested interests on both sides to maintain that relationship. And the, and the, the Chinese government is, in fact, also responding to the interests of the Chinese uh, capitalist class to the traders and so on and so forth. But what is distinct to China uh, is that they do not have, at least at this particular juncture, they do not have an imperial agenda. So that when they send, uh, when they send their, their companies to Libya or to, or to other countries in sub-Saharan Africa, they're essentially there to make money. They're, they don't come in with a, a Chinese uh, integrated command, uh, you know, which is going to protect their, their, their investments. Uh, that's the model. That's the U.S. model. U.S. Uh, AFRICOM is there essentially to recolonize Africa. And, and, of course, when the Chinese come into Africa, uh, they're not within their own, uh, you know, their, their own sphere of influence. They're within the sphere of influence which is essentially Western and, and this is something, of course, which is feared by the United States and its allies. I'm speaking with economist and director of the Center for Research on Globalization, Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show, Global Warfare. Is the U.S. NATO going to attack Russia? I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You have recently been talking about global warfare in several regions of the world. First of all, what do you mean by global warfare? And in that context, 
could you talk at more length about what you refer to as non-conventional warfare? Uh, you mentioned this in the beginning, and I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on that. Well, global warfare is a project defined at the level of U.S. foreign policy, but also in terms of U.S. military doctrine. And it is also reflected by the fact that the United States has military bases and facilities all over the world. It has its regional command structures. I can't give you the exact numbers from memory, but we're talking about military bases in over 100 countries and uh, deployment worldwide, not to mention, uh, uh, you know, the Star Wars, the, the, the high-tech dimensions, which, which make it global, that, that they can strike anywhere, anywhere in the world within very short notice. Uh, so that is what is meant by global warfare. It has to do with the, the organizational structures of the military, on the one hand, uh, it has to do with the fact that we're dealing with a globalized economy, which is protected by military intelligence operations. And it has to do with the weapon systems of long-range missiles and so on and so forth. Uh, but other methods of, of intervention, as I mentioned, it's the so-called uh, environmental modification techniques, climatic warfare, and so on very vast, and of course, the communication system that we have worldwide, uh, the, the surveillance system, the, the satellite technologies. So that is, what I, that is what is meant by global warfare. And um, uh, it's a very scary um, context because, first of all, public opinion may have some understanding of some dimensions of this, of this particular framework, but they are not uh, aware of the, of the sort of global implications. And I should say that within the realm of decision-making, even the decision-makers are not entirely aware of the global ramifications of their actions. And that's why I, I also stress the fact that there's the historical role of mistakes and errors and, and uh, human, you know, human factors, uh, uh, paranoia, and so on and so forth, which can insert itself within the framework of decision-making. Uh, in other words, we are, we are certainly at, at uh, perhaps the most uh, serious crossroads in world history. It's the dangers of a third world war is certainly looming. I, I, I don't think we, we should neglect that. I'm not suggesting it will take place. What we, have to, uh, what we have to do is to formulate strategies which will enable us to undermine this agenda. When, uh, when Hillary Clinton says a nuclear war is on the table, I want the Iranians to know if I'm the president, we will attack Iran, we will obliterate them. That's what she said, and it was part of her previous election campaign. But nonetheless, uh, she made that statement, and she's made other statements. Now, what we're dealing with is, in, in fact, the outright criminalization of politics. And then there's a the question of sanity and honesty in, in U.S. foreign policy. 
well, there is no sanity and there is no honesty. And if you want to be president of the United States, you almost have to have some kind of a criminal record. Otherwise, you're not going to be elected or you're not going to be supported by the lobby groups. And why is that? Because people who have uh, very fraudulent backgrounds, such as Hillary Clinton, are easily manipulated. In fact, we noticed that many of the regime changes are precisely that. Now, when you raise the issue of global warfare, the non-conventional forms of intervention are, are part of that agenda. So that when you have a, a regime change in Brazil, uh, or in Argentina, or in Venezuela, it's part of that agenda. Uh, the mechanisms may not be military, but they're certainly intelligence, and they also have an economic dimension. Russia is taking NATO's saber-rattling in Eastern Europe very seriously and has said that it will do whatever it takes to secure Russia's borders. The launching of the European Missile Defense System, Aegis, by the United States in May has repeatedly been criticized by Russia as an attempt by the U.S. to perhaps be able to preemptively strike Russia. Now, Russia has deployed an Iskander missile system, which would be in response to this Aegis system. What is your view of Russia's military capabilities? Well, this um, Iskander... It's called the SS-26 Stone Tactical Missile System. Uh, it has been around for quite some time. Um, I don't think that we are necessarily in, a, in an entirely new um, environment. Uh, Russia has, or at least claims to have, the capabilities of uh, confronting any kind of missile, so-called missile defense system, which in effect is a system of attack missiles. But I think certainly Russia is concerned, rightly concerned, first of all, regarding the military buildup, uh, even though that doesn't necessarily signify outright war. But, but of course, it could lead to incidents. And um, it has sent a message to, to the West that it intends to um, protect its borders and its territories, and it is not intent upon any kind of negotiation, uh, e.g. with regard to Ukraine or with regard to Crimea. And uh, uh, at the same time, it has demonstrated to the West, particularly since its intervention in Syria, that it has very advanced aerospace capabilities, uh, which would respond if U.S. NATO were to attack the Russian Federation. But if, if this were to occur, we, we are in a World War III scenario, particularly in view of the fact that the diplomatic uh, relationship which existed during the Cold War is no longer there. During the Cold War, there was, the, you know, there was the there was the hotline, there was dialogue, there was persistent exchanges between the West and the East. We don't have that anymore, and we also have a, a different leadership. When we've got 
heads of state and heads of government who are who are bordering onto paranoia, and, and I'm talking about not only in the United States, uh, but also in Western Europe, so that the situation is potentially dangerous. But as I uh, underscored, I, I don't think that this buildup is intended to attack Russia on its Western frontier. It is more uh, an issue of threatening Russia and uh, using these threats to uh, force Russia into making concessions to the West or accepting the West uh, hegemony. And I think that U.S. policymakers must understand that Russia will never do that. They have fought several wars, starting with Napoleon, then World War I, and then World War II. And in World War II, they lost 10% of their population defending their homeland. So there is absolutely no feasible possibility that the United States and its allies could actually conquer this, this vast country. But um, again, within the realm of non-conventional warfare, they could certainly destabilize the Russian economy. They could create divisions, or they have, in fact, been creating divisions within the Russian Federation. And we have to look at the map Russia and China and the, the various republics of the former Soviet Union, which still have alliances with the Russian Federation, it, it's a mass. It extends from, uh, from uh, Eastern Europe right to the Far East. And that is, of course, the area which is sought for conquest. And you can read the text of Zbigniew Brzezinski with regard to U.S. foreign policy. And in fact, Spigno Brzezinski's proposal, his most recent proposal, is to weaken the relationship between China and Russia. And that, in fact, they are doing that. And uh, if that relationship were to crumble for some reason, I think then Russia would be very much isolated and much more vulnerable to uh, U.S. endeavors in terms of military conquest and so on. But I should mention there's another important thing, is that the Russians are playing a very careful diplomacy. They are establishing bilateral relations with some of America's staunchest allies, including Israel and Saudi Arabia. And they are attempting to maintain their relationship with, with uh, their partners in Western Europe, particularly Germany and France. And uh, that, I think, is very significant. This, um, this global military agenda and this global economic agenda with its concurrent uh, trade agreements, the TTIP and the, the TPP, which essentially establish the, the contours of a colonial economic system, okay? it's, it's an imperial project. The trade agreements are part of the, of the imperial project. Well, at the same time, there's a lot of resistance to that within the European Union. And there's also, there are also historical ties of Western Europe to, to Russia, which go back several centuries. Um, and and uh, this is not something you can necessarily erase uh, just with a stroke of U.S. foreign policy. So that um, the Russians are very astute diplomats. 
and they are also very experienced in strategic and military affairs. And that's something which U.S. uh, decision makers have to take into account, because uh, if they don't, they are, in fact, precipitating uh, the world into uh, the unthinkable uh, World War III scenario, uh, which, in a real sense of the world, threatens the future of humanity. And mistakes, stupidity, uh, lack of judgment in the implementation of a so-called imperial design uh, could certainly lead the world uh, into a global conflict. Michel Chosodovsky, thank you very much. Well, thank you for a very uh, constructive uh, analytical discussion. Delighted to be on the program. I've been speaking with Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show has been Global Warfare. Is the U.S. NATO going to attack Russia? Michel Chosodovsky is the founder, director, and editor of the Center for Research on Globalization based in Montreal, Quebec. The Global Research website, globalresearch.ca, publishes news articles, commentary, background research, and analysis. Michel Chosodovsky is the author of 11 books, including The Globalization of Poverty and the New World Order, War and Globalization, The Truth Behind September 11th, America's War on Terrorism, as well as co-editor of the anthology The Global Economic Crisis, The Great Depression of the 21st Century. All books are available at globalresearch.ca. That's globalresearch.ca. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaro Mako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at GNB Radio. Release. You dig me?